This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, I think the first group of impact of, of AI is, is kind of benefited what we call the AI arms dealers, right? His views on the market, investing, and how AI figures into his strategy. On Consuelo Mac Wealthtrack. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Bill Miller, Research Affiliates, Strategus Asset Management, Women Investing in Security and Education, and Matthews Asia. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. This week we are celebrating active management with a star portfolio manager who Morningstar considers to be one of the best in the business. So we invited T. Rowe Price's David Giroux to join us. For those of you not familiar with him, Giroux is a chief investment officer and head of investment strategy for T. Rowe Price Investment Management. He has been the portfolio manager of the five-star gold-rated T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation Fund since 2006. And as Morningstar puts it, he's displayed an innate ability to opportunistically invest across both equities and bonds, capturing pockets of value through strong stock selection and impressively timed shifts between stock and bond exposure. His execution of this strategy's nimble contrarian approach has delivered top-notch returns for its investors. Well, Drew is a five-time nominee and two-time winner of Morningstar's Manager of the Year Award, the most recent being in 2017 in Morningstar's Allocation and Alternatives category. He is a member of the prestigious Barron's Roundtable and the author of a book titled Capital Allocation. In 2022, we devoted a show to the book and the topic, which you can watch on WealthTrack.com. Unfortunately, Capital Appreciation Fund has been closed to new investors since 2014 due to capacity restraints, but Giroux manages two other funds that are open, the T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation Equity ETF and a just-announced new fund, the T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation and Income Fund, which, as its name implies, is more focused on income. When I last interviewed Giroux in October of 2022, the market had come through a very rough period, and Giroux characterized the risk-reward in the market as quite compelling. I asked him how the market looks today. You know, it's funny because uh, it was last year, the market was cheap, uh, a lot of really attractive companies at, at really compelling valuations. Sentiment was bad. Everybody thought we were going to go into a recession. And we kind of took the opposite view at the time, as you can as you can remember. And what's interesting today, where the S&P 500 is up almost 1,000 points off the bottom, uh, you know, a lot of those growth stocks have done really well. Cyclical stocks have done very, very well. You know, it's almost like the polar opposite today of the market, where we see value. We think the risk-reward of the market is less compelling today than it was back then. And we would also make an argument that, you know, whereas technology stocks and uh, cyclicals were really, really attractive back then, right now, maybe some of the stuff that's more attractive is more of the traditional safe stuff, a little more garpy stuff, whether it be healthcare, uh, utilities, or even, you know, even potentially even energy is becoming a little more attractive in our framework today given it's underperformed a little bit this year. So before talking about some of the specific opportunities in, in those sectors, 
I would like to address what you just mentioned is how well some of the tech companies have done. And you know, you have really participated in that. I mean, you you know, you owned you know Microsoft and Google and and Apple and Nvidia. What is your view of those today, and how are you handling? Uh, the incredible appreciation we've seen. Yeah, like anything that goes up a lot, uh, we typically are pulling back our exposure and we tend to be a right. little bit anti-momentum in our investment style. And again, you know, when we think about, you know, Microsoft, you know, Microsoft's a great company. We love Microsoft. We're still overweight Microsoft. But, you know, it wasn't too long ago, Microsoft was at 220. And if you think about it, the forward five-year view of returns uh, when there was 220, was, was, you know, kind of mid to high teens kind of total return at that level over our next five-year basis. You know, when, uh, you know, at 370, 380, you know, it's more like high single digits, low double digits. So by the very nature of that different return forward threshold, uh, return expect expectation, uh, we're going to own a little bit less Microsoft than we did, you know, a year, you know, a, a year ago. We're going to own a little bit less uh, Apple. We're going to own a little bit less NVIDIA, right? I mean, it wasn't too long ago. NVIDIA was a, you know, almost a $100 stock. And today, right. and it wasn't too long ago, it was a $500 stock a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, we, we have pulled back exposure on those. But I think what, what's interesting is there are companies in those, let's call it some of those big techs areas that still looks pretty compelling to us. Um, you know, Google looks a little bit more compelling to us. It's trailed some of those other names. Um, you know, I, I would say there's kind of, let's call it things like uh, select software companies that are, that are quite attractive that will benefit from AI, both on the, on the revenue side, on the cost side, look attractive. But if, if you broaden it out, those other 480 or 475 companies in the market, you know, we do see good risk rewards in those stocks that have trailed the market this year. Like I said, utilities, healthcare, select industrials, waste, energy, where we think, again, the next five-year view looks pretty attractive to us on a risk-reward basis. How do you duplicate or what the kind of performance that you've had in those mega-cap tech stocks, or, or can you? We think about it a little bit on a risk-reward basis. If you've had a stock that goes up, you know, you know goes up 75%, you know, that is the equivalent of five or six years of returns for some of those stocks on a, you know, on a, on a risk-adjusted basis. Right. So what, what, what I would tell you is, again, all our process, Consuelo, is, is a lot about thinking about what is the value of the stock today? What do we think the stock's going to be worth at the end of 2027? Doing kind of a very simple kind of internal rate of return analysis and, you know, choosing those stocks that have the best risk reward in the marketplace. Again, last year, that was a pretty easy kind of bet because it was buy industrials, buy cyclicals, buy information technology companies because the IRRs on those stocks over a five-year basis was great. As those stocks have rallied and their IRs have come in, as other things like utilities, healthcare, and other industrials, waste, energy have come in this year, have underperformed, their IRs have expanded. So we put more incremental dollars to work in those areas relative to last year. Whatever the market gives us from an opportunity perspective, let's take advantage of that. You told me uh, over the phone that you would describe 2023 as the year of AI, artificial intelligence. Talk to me about why you're saying that. What do you mean by that? When ChatGPT kind of came on the scenes kind of early this year, it was, I think it, it, it's a mindset change uh, from investors' perspective. 
uh, from, I guess, from regulators perspective, for technology companies, for enterprises, for consumers, everybody is all of a sudden aware of something uh, <laughs> they weren't really aware of, weren't thinking about uh, literally a, a year ago at this time. And that's changed people's uh, perceptions of where they want to put dollars to invest from a growth perspective, uh, where enterprises are making investments. And we've obviously seen that play out given you know, the amazing growth in NVIDIA's GPU uh, demand this year, which has driven that stock to kind of you know, amazing, uh, you know, amazing returns, obviously, in the last, uh, last year. We're all coming to grips with that new dynamic and what, what AI is going to do from a returns perspective, what it's going to do from a societal perspective, what does it do from an inflation or interest rates perspective, what does it do from an employment perspective, what does it do from a cost perspective, and trying to make sure we understand all the implications of AI uh, across all those different dimensions and make sure that we're incorporating that analysis in those, those kind of five-year forward internal rate return analysis as we're doing on all our companies. Please share with us uh, what you have learned so far. And I feel like this is early days and clearly you've devoted a lot of time to it. So the first derivative impact uh, of AI is what and what kinds of companies has it benefited? Well, I think the first derivative impact of, of AI is, is kind of benefited what we call the AI arms dealers, right? Really the chip manufacturers. You know, you know it's, it's NVIDIA, it's AMD, it's Broadcom, all been really kind of amazing stocks. Probably Microsoft as well, given some, you know, they're a leader uh, with kind of the co-pilot options that they have. And I think that, you know, those, those have been all been amazing stocks in the course of 2023. Well, I think what we're trying to make sure we, and again, the market's got, gotten, the, you know, the market has identified those companies as big winners. The stocks have gone up a lot. We're really trying to think about it a little bit more is what is the second derivative impact of AI, not just this year or 2024, but as we think about that five years out. And I think there's a couple of things I would highlight is, you know, we've all kind of told our children to go become engineers or programmers, learn to, learn to code. And I'm not saying it's a horrible decision, but you know, things like GitHub Copilot from Microsoft, it makes programmers 50% more productive. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was 25%, maybe in a year, or a couple of years, it's gonna be 100% more productive. If you can make a programmer 100% more pr productive, you don't need as many programmers. Companies that employ a lot of programmers, they're gonna be able to grow in the future without adding as much you know, physical human labor as they have in the past, which will probably be positive for their margins. So you can think about companies, whether it be an Intuit, uh, a Roper, um, a PTC, they have a lot of programmers, you know, maybe their margins expand a little bit faster than they have in the past. They can use the productivity tools to their benefit. We've always been in the view, ever since inflation took off, that it would get back to a more normalized level, maybe two to two and a half percent. I think as a society, as investors, something that we're gonna to have to come to grips with over time is AI will be, um, it'll destroy jobs. It'll make people more productive. And that if you have a supply demand imbalance for, for human labor, that will probably put some deflationary, cost, deflationary pressures on, um, on kind of the you know, labor cost and that helps probably drive inflation back down to that 2% or even maybe below over a longer period of time. How soon is AI going to hit the companies that you're looking at? I think we're already seeing a certain impact cost structure. I think uh, Alphabet talked about this on one of their conference calls, their CFO, Ruth Porat, kind of talked about, you know, one of the reasons why margins, which have historically for Alphabet going down, 
for really since they've been public. Now they're going to start going up. And the first reason that she highlighted in that conference call was AI. And you know what does Google have? A lot of programmers, a lot of engineers. Uh, and you know if you can make those programmers more productive, if you can grow your revenues at a you know high single digits, low double digit kind of rate, you don't need to hire as many programmers. That actually enables more margin expansion than you've had in the past. And that's actually happening now. I mean, that's something that they're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. They've kind of highlighted, in the case of Alphabet or Google, that that's a 24 event, that's a 25 event, that's a 26 event, right? Uh, that you're going to see kind of productivity out of, out of them and get their margins going in the right direction, which is, a, again, one of the reasons why we're a little bit more positive on Alphabet. Again, it's also been one of the names that's lagged a little bit relative to some of the other big cap tech stocks. Right. And you know, you wrote a book called Capital Allocation, and uh, and I know that capital allocation is, from your perspective and your research, is incredibly important. How a company allocates their cash, whether they're putting it into you know R and D or they're putting it into stock buybacks or putting it into dividends. Uh, so, are you looking at how companies are allocating to AI? research and or AI applications, is that going to be an important part of that exercise for you now? It is, it is. Again, mm -hmm. you, you, we don't have as much visibility on that aspect of it, honestly, right now. Right. Outside of the companies that are very, very public about that, again, everybody uses AI in every conference call. We have a conceptual view of that and how that impacts certain companies and their cost structures. We are trying to think about not only how they are, they're investing, but who could benefit from this the most, who could benefit from this a little bit, and who could actually right. be hurt by this on a longer term basis. So aside from companies that have a lot of software engineers, I'm thinking about healthcare. How does it apply to healthcare, an, an area that you think is very attractive? I mean, you own United Healthcare, you owned uh, you know, Becton Dickinson, a, a medical uh, device company. Is it going to have a significant impact on healthcare anytime soon? It's funny. You know, healthcare probably won't have the earliest impact from an AI, mm -hmm. but if you think longer term, again, even five to 10 years, healthcare is probably right. one of those areas they could actually have the biggest benefit from, from AI, right? Mm -hmm. You just think about radiology as one example, right? You know, GE Healthcare is incorporating AI technology into their big scanners. You can actually train a, a system, an AI system, a large language model essentially uh, on, it looks at, you know, 10 million scans and say right. these are the ones that are most likely to have cancer or not have cancer and actually give that and then take that analysis, give that insight to a radiologist who can check and say, oh, this, this looks like it probably does based on all these 10, 10 million scans. Uh, you know, you know, the, the ability to apply that on drug discovery, uh, on life sciences, maybe AI can take the place you know, between you know, the, uh, some of the interactions a patient might need with a doctor, potentially even uh, longer term, or a therapist, right? Uh, I think healthcare is going to be an area five to 10 years will be probably materially impacted, I guess, in a very positive way, I think, from AI. Take us through some of the companies that you've invested in and the areas uh, that you think look un undervalued. We've always liked utilities. Again, utilities got overvalued last year, so we went underweight right. utilities last year. Uh, given how strong they had been, but this year they've been they've been really had a lot of pain, right? They've been big underperformers, and so what's interesting to me about utilities is their fundamentals have really never been better. Uh, we are in the middle of this transition away from coal and natural gas to more renewables, more transmission, more batteries, and the number of utilities I can count 
today they're kind of growing earnings at a six or seven percent rate that have a three and a half percent dividend yield. You know, the ability to generate kind of a total return of 10 percent or more with half the market's beta, with really good fundamentals, no Chinese risk, uh, no FX risk, no GLP-1 risk, uh, at, at, you know, sometimes like 15 or 16 times earnings. That's really compelling in my mind. And it, not just on an absolute perspective, I, I think what's also attractive is people think about, you know, utilities as like interest rate plays. Yes. Yeah, that was true in the past, and it's, st it's still true to a certain extent, obviously. But most utilities are actually growing earnings at a very, very healthy clip now. Uh, a long time ago, all you got with utilities was their, was their yield. But today, you got these utilities are growing 6 or 7% per year. I, I would actually argue that the average utility growing 6 or 7% per year with a 3% dividend yield, delivering that 10 or 11% kind of total return algorithm, will actually be a better total return algorithm than the market uh, over time. If you actually look at the last, since 2006 to 2023, SP5 earnings growth has only been 6%. So you got utilities kind of growing almost a very similar rate to the market, plus the dividend yield with, with lower volatility, less FX risk. I think utilities are very compelling, and especially relative to consumer staples. Consumer staples have GLP-1 risk, they have uh, challenges with FX, um, they have challenges with a variety of other issues, and they trade for higher valuation, so you get slower growth, lower dividend yields at a higher valuation. I think over time, that arbitrage, by having a big overweight in utilities and a big underweight in staples, uh, creates a lot of value over the next three to five years. A couple of names I would just highlight, you know, like an Ameren, uh, a DTE, an Excel, all exceptional management teams, good jurisdictions, that we see really good value in all three of those names here. Some of the other contrarian ideas, what are some of the other ones that somebody would say, why would he own this? Healthcare is another area where we really like, uh, again, it, healthcare did really well last right. year, but I think if you, you can go across the board in healthcare, whether it be a, a, a Biogen, which has really great uh, story here around Alzheimer's. They basically, get, they have the, Best Alzheimer's drug on the market. Rivety is the old Perkineller, got spun off, you know, they got rid of their old industrial assets. Uh, and now you got, you got a great CEO in Prasad Singh. You got a really good assets at, at Rivety, trading at, you know, four to five multiple different difference between kind of the, the Danners and Thermos of the world, which we like as well. What's your one investment idea for a long-term diversified portfolio? Actually, if you have a five-year view, I think Rivety would be the most, you know, it's been a tough stock this year. Great CEO in Prasad Singh. You know, it's basically a life science tool company with reagents, software, uh, diagnostics equipment. Again, we think over time, uh, the life science tool space had a tough year this year. We think next year is probably a lot better year. 25 is even a better year for the, that sector. You know, this is a company that we think can grow high single digit organically, can, can probably improve margins 50 to 100 bips a year, deploys capital extremely well, probably can generate mid-teens plus returns. Uh, and you're buying it at less than 20 times forward numbers, that's probably the most compelling uh, stock we have in the market. When we do all that five-year IRR analysis I talked about, you know, that is, that is, today is actually our highest IRR over the next five years is that Rivety. You know, the other name we just highlight in healthcare is Becton Dickinson. Uh, Becton Dickinson is, is also a large holding. Um, they've had some FX issues this year where the Mexican pace was going the right way, wrong way against them. But you think about the fundamentals are really strong there. The business is getting is growing faster. Cap allocation is going the right way. Margins are going the right way. 
Uh, they had a major product that came off the market, and Alaris is back on the market now, taking share. Uh, so we really like the Becton Dickens story as well. And why is healthcare? been a contrarian idea? Why has it had a problem in 2023? If you think about uh, healthcare, is not you know, a near-term beneficiary of AI, right? So again, we've, right. we've, we've had a market dominated by those AI plays. And this, is, this has been a, also a market dominated by higher beta stocks. Uh, so we, we've had a situation here with, uh, you know, there's a little bit lower beta stocks. Uh, but I, I, so, and also we've had life science tools. It's been a really great sector for the last decade. But we spent a lot of money on capital equipment, on diagnostic uh, systems the last couple of years around COVID, and we have to basically take a breather, maybe a year and a half breather there. But I think as you think about the second half of 24, 25, 26, you know, we feel that really, really good about life science tools. The science, the underlying science is really, really compelling. David, you talk about, you know, 12 months out, two, three, four, five years out, whatever, and, and one of the companies that you uh, was a one investment uh, for a long-term diversified portfolio a couple of years ago was General Electric. And I was just thinking, why on earth would he be buying General Electric? And you had to wait for that to pay off, right? But it has. It's been an amazing stock this year. I mean, industrials have uh, been our, our biggest out, our biggest contributor to performance this year. And GE is a big part of that, right? And I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important point you make, though. We have these five-year views, and sometimes those, 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 these stocks do really, really well in one year. Like buying, buying NVIDIA last year has been a great investment for us this year. But sometimes, you know, GE took us three years to get the 100% yes. to get the 100% plus move, right? And so I never know exactly when it's going to happen, but I think sometimes sometimes it's in year 1, sometimes in year 2, year 3, but if you have that 5-year view, almost always the returns are great over that 5-year perspective on some of these stocks we talk about. Probably your viewers want me to to highlight a name that's going to go out go up a lot next month or next next quarter, but I think, you know, our time horizon is a little bit longer than that and uh, I think that's kind of our secret sauce a little bit having that little bit longer term view. Given the opportunities that you've just talked about and some of the companies that you're investing in, are you excited about 2024, for instance, and the, uh, the investment potential in your portfolio? Do you have any concerns about a recession? I would say we are 99% micro, the company analysis, 1% macro. Well, what we tend to do from a portfolio perspective is, you know, instead of trying to predict what's going to happen to the GDP next year, what we, what we typically find is we tend to be a little bit underweight equities or risk assets when things feel good. And you know, honestly, today, things feel pretty good. Uh, the, the odds of recession have gone down, interest rates are going down, the Fed's probably gonna be cutting rates next year. So people are optimistic. But the problem is when everybody's optimistic, valuations are high, expectations are high, people are putting a lot of money to work. What you systematically do from a portfolio perspective is, when things are cheap, you're adding to risk assets. And then when they get more expensive and people are positive, you kind of go a little bit underweight. Speaking of being underweight equities, but also uh, being overweight, are you overweight fixed income at this point? A couple of years ago, uh, you know, when, when rates were basically almost zero, uh, there was no value in fixed income. There's no value in traditional fixed income. Our duration, our fixed income portfolio was like 1.25 years. Today, it's over four years kind of duration, given how attractive rates are. And, and it's also relative to equities, right? So the analysis we would do is if we look at a double B bond that, I, that today earns, let's call it 65 or 7%, I would say I'm getting today 85% of the market's long-term return 
but I'm only taking 10% of the market's risk. We see good value in high quality, high yield, high quality triple Bs, high quality leveraged loans. We see really compelling value in those uh, in that area right now. So our fixed income portfolio today is 32% of, of CAF today. And over time, you know, just two years ago, it was down to 17% of the portfolio was in fixed income. So we, we do see the best risk reward in the market today, especially today, is in kind of those, those uh, you know, triple Bs, double Bs, and leveraged loans that we like so much. And again, we went from 0% treasuries a couple of years ago, now to 10 or 11% treasuries in the portfolio when rates went up. Again, a little bit more of a contrarian mindset about fixed income. David Drew, fascinating conversation. So thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights with us. Thanks, David. No, thank you. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is a recommendation to read one of David Giroux's and my favorite books. It is Read Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. First published in 2011, it is now considered a classic in understanding how the brain works, affecting just about every decision we humans make. New York Times columnist David Brooks described Kahneman and his longtime colleague, the late Amos Tversky, to whom the book is dedicated, as the Lewis and Clark of the mind. They open up new territory in identifying our dual process brains divided between the fast system, number one, quick, intuitive, and yes, even delusional, and the slow system, number two, deliberate, requiring effort and concentration, thus tiring easily. Guess which one frequently wins out? Well, if, as the ancient Greeks believed that knowing thyself is the highest form of knowledge, then thinking fast and slow provides invaluable insights for the process. Well, next week, why emerging markets are no longer a growth story, what are they? Andrew Foster, fund manager of the highly rated Seafarer Funds, has some answers. In this week's Extra Feature, Drew discusses Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and why he considers it a must-read for investors. Please follow us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. Thank you for spending time with us. Have a lovely weekend, and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.